Hi, my name is Amy. And my name is James. And this is How I Learned to Love Shrimp, a podcast about promising ways to help animals and build the animal advocacy movement. In this episode, we spoke to Amanda from Open Philanthropy, who talked us through Open Philanthropy's animal welfare funding model, their funding process, and which interventions they're most excited about funding right now. We talked about the future of philanthropy in the space and Amanda's opinion on the most promising interventions to end animal suffering over the long term. So today we're joined by Amanda Hungerford, a Farmed Animal Welfare Programme Officer at Open Philanthropy. Amanda has been at Open Philanthropy since 2018 and prior to that she worked as a staff attorney specialising in farmed animal issues for the Humane Society of the United States. Welcome Amanda. Thank you, I'm so happy to be here. Sure. It's going to be, yeah, very interesting episode. Obviously, funding always a hot topic, even with some of the guests we've interviewed so far. Um, always a little, you know, donation plug or fundraising uh, plug at the end. So, um, yeah, I think listeners will be interested to get some of your insight on this one. Great. And we start everyone off with a similar question, which is, what's an animal related view you changed your mind on recently? And why did you change your mind? Yeah, what a wonderful question. Um I think the the big one, the big the big animal related view I've changed my mind on fairly recently is insects. Um, mm. I very much used to view them um, as these kind of unfeeling automatons. Did not give them a second thought. Was very happy to not worry about their well being. Um, mm. But after seeing some of the moral weight work that Rethink Priorities has put out. Um, mm-hmm. I, s- I now feel worried <laughs> about the insects. Um, my sense is there's still quite a lot we don't know. Um, and I could imagine easily changing my mind again. Um, I should also clarify that this is my personal view rather than open philanthropy's view. Um, yeah. But I, I feel quite worried that um, insects may be more capable of experiencing both, both positive well-being and suffering than I had thought mm. previously. Um, and given just how many insects there are that's that's quite a nightmare to think about Mm. yeah for sure it just seems to be going so fastly kind of out of control right when you look at the numbers like we spoke to andreas um last week and and even insects you know outnumber the amount of shrimp that we farm already and it's kind of like yeah the numbers are huge Mm. they really are they really are yeah, I think currently it's at 1 trillion farmed insects per year. In some estimations, it could be up to 70 trillion farmed insects kind of by 2050, which is kind of worrying, and especially as people are kind of pushing it from a climate angle as well. So mm. I think we need to do a lot of work to not let that happen, basically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's before you even begin to think of the nightmare of non-farmed insects, um, which I prefer mm. at this point just to not, not trouble <laughs> myself with that um, because it's kind of too horrifying to consider. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And uh, Amanda, what's your background? Um, How did you get into this line of work? I started in the farmed animal movement as a lawyer, um, a litigator specifically working, um, as you noted in your introduction, at the Humane Society of the United States. Um, Yeah. Great. And what led you to work with Open Philanthropy? How did that journey take place and um, for you to now become their farmed animal program officer? When I worked at the Humane Society of the United States, I worked with Lewis Ballard, who um, is the other program officer for farm animal welfare at Open Philanthropy. Um, And when Open Philanthropy decided to expand their farm animal welfare program, Lewis approached me, encouraged me to apply. Um, 
I was quite hesitant to apply. I really thought I was mm. going to be a lawyer for all of my days. Um, and I also did not have a good sense of what Lewis's job was. Yeah, yeah I, I feared that it was just going to be hobnobbing with wealthy people, um, <laughs> you know, trying to encourage them to give money. And that sounded like a bad time to me. Um, <laughs> but in fact, it, it, I then learned that more of the time was spent looking really big picture at the farm animal welfare movement. And that was really tantalizing to me, the the opportunity to see how different parts of the movement intersect with each other and kind of work with strategy on a very, very broad scale rather Mm. than what I had been doing, which was like a deep dive into some small, but like very specific area of the movement. Right. Mm. And so did you train as an animal lawyer? You knew that's what you were going to go into? I did not. I went to law school um, as so many people go to law school because I had no idea what to do with my life. And I thought, (laughs) let me just defer having to get a job for three more years. Um, But my second year of law school, I took an animal law class with David Wolfson um, and was like, oh, this is it. This is Mm. the thing. This is the thing for me. Um, I kind of hadn't realized that you could work on farm animal welfare as a career. And so once I learned, I was hooked and yeah, never went back. And moving on to um, Urban Philanthropy's kind of farm animal welfare team, what's the headline of what you guys do and kind of the main thrust of your work? So the very broad explanation of what we do is just try to improve welfare for farmed animals as much as possible. Um, what that means in practice is that we focus on help trying to help the most numbers of animals that we can. Um, and so that translates to largely fish and chickens, um, and largely in the countries with the highest number of animals. Um, and then the other side of that is trying to look at um, targeting the practices that are most harmful for animals. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a percentage of our work focused on trying to reduce the number of animals caught in the industrial animal agricultural system. Um, mm-hmm. And that's largely through the promotion of plant-based alternatives to animal products. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And I know it's hard to estimate because you're grants do change year on year, but as a rough ballpark, what's the kind of estimated grant making capacity you have in any one year? It does change year to year. It's in the tens of millions every year, Mm. but where it falls within that tens of millions kind of fluctuates. Nice. Great. And how big is the team that are dispersing those grants specifically in farmed animal welfare and maybe comparatively to the rest of open philanthropies, um, areas, cause areas? We're very large now. Um, just as of the last six to eight months, there's now eight of us. Um, wow. Whereas for many years, there was only two to three of us. Yeah. Um, and we're now, we may not be the biggest, but if we're not the biggest, we're one of the biggest teams within Open Philanthropy. We still have many program areas yeah. at Open Philanthropy that's only one person. And so eight mm. of us is, is quite a quite a jump from that. Yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. Nice. That's very exciting. Yeah. And I think like a nice reflection of um, the seriousness with which the organization takes farm animal welfare. Yes, absolutely. Mm. And I guess probably listeners may know Open Philanthropy fairly well if you've been in the farm animal movement, just because you guys are reasonably good sized grant maker and people uh, have heard about your work. But what are some common misconceptions that people have of Open Phil and yeah, Does this come up a lot? And yeah, what are they? What a good question. Um, Perhaps the biggest or most damaging misconception that I come across is this idea that we have like a bottomless pool of funding. Um, Mm. 
And I think the implication of that is that sometimes when we decline to fund a project, people think it's because it's just bad that we think, you know, Mm. this is a terrible thing. You shouldn't be doing it. Um, It's not worth any funding whatsoever. And that's not really the case at all. Um, Although tens of millions of dollars feels like a lot of money. um, When you compare it to the scope of the problem, it quickly feels like not that much money at all. Um, And so we are having to make trade-offs. Every dollar we give to one project is a dollar we can't give to another project. And so Mm. unfortunately, we do often have to decline to fund projects that probably could do quite a lot of good for animals in the world. Right. And do you get that feedback from those organizations that they think they um, sort of kind of appeal it in a sense of, um, you know, that maybe it's similar to other grants that you've given? Um, I think that's a really challenging misconception like you say that perhaps they would pivot or they would they would think that you know without open fulfill funding that means that something needs to drastically change within the organization when perhaps you know that everything's going as it should be it's just not the right time for open fill to be funding that particular organization i do think people take it as sending a stronger signal than we sometimes intend it to send um the other thing is that i think other funders sometimes take it as sending a stronger signal than we intend it to say, which is mm. not to say there's never a project that crosses my desk that I think like, Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you should be <laughs> doing that. Um, yeah. but, but it's definitely not all of them that we are unable to fund. Um, mm. and so, so people don't want it to get out that we passed on a project because I think there's this view that well, open philanthropy with all of their funding passed on a project, it must mean that we're bad. Um, mm. and that's just mm. not the case. Mm. Yeah. Maybe as a small side note, if there is a project that comes on your plate and it actually you don't think it's useful, maybe it's even like you think negative overall, what would you do about that? It depends on the relationship um, that we have with the the applicant. Um, I feel really hesitant to be too heavy-handed. Um, mm. I'm I'm only one person. I think probably a lot of my opinions will prove to be wrong. Um, and I, although I used to be an advocate, I haven't been an advocate for a long time. And so I hesitate to always substitute my my reasoning for that of an advocate who maybe has more of a, mm. I don't know, insider perspective than I do. Um, and so it's, it's the unusual case where I would reach out and say, I think you're doing something wrong. I think you should change it. Um, that said, if people ask for feedback, sometimes we will give feedback. Um, or if it's someone with whom I have like a particularly good relationship and think that they will give my opinion the weight that it deserves, um, which is like not that much, <laughs> then I would be more <laughs> willing to share my opinion. Um, or if the shift felt smaller, you know, if, if I, I would be more reluctant to say to someone, throw it all out um, mm-hmm. because I could be wrong, but I would feel more comfortable saying to someone something like, hey, you're, you're focusing on this country with a very small number of animals. Have you considered focusing on a country with large numbers of animals? Like that feels like the kind of feedback I'd be more comfortable giving. That makes a lot of sense. Is that kind of an individual viewpoint of yours? I'm assuming there's kind of um, conversations within the wider farmed animal team at Open Philanthropy that there's, you know, obviously these specific goals of the the most number of animals, the most neglected countries or the countries that host the most um, suffering animals. So generally that's not um, like a a necessarily personal response. That's kind of an open fill standard um, procedural uh, response to something like that. There are certain things that are definitely, we all share 
Um, sure, you sure. know, focusing on numbers, numbers of animals like that is, I feel very comfortable saying as a representative of <laughs> philanthropy, like this is an important thing. Um, but there's plenty of disagreement within the team on the margins of things, um, hmm. which interventions are best, um, what weight we should be doing welfare versus um, animal product alternatives. I think there's disagreement along the team, among the team about that. Um, and then there's huge disagreement in the team about the level, the degree to which we should intervene in an advocacy organization and kind of throw our mm. weight around. I think it's a really hard question. Um, and there's no uniform perspective on that about the appropriate degree of intervention in another organization. Mm. That's really that interesting. In terms of misconceptions, maybe one more I have to ask is, is there ever a time when people are surprised that you have funded a project or you fund a certain kind of work or you don't fund a certain kind of work in terms of your own priorities? That's a great question. I'm sure that that has come up. I'm struggling to think of a good example. Um, but I, I mean, I think one example is that we have a reputation as being very tied to corporate campaigns. Um, and so... I think when we fund something new, people are kind of like, oh, you do you do other things. <laughs> um, yeah. On the other side of that, you know, if we don't fund a specific corporate campaign initiative, which we have, we have just declined to fund some, um, there's been this feeling of like, but I, I checked the box. I did the thing yeah. that you like to do. Like, why aren't you giving me funding? Um, and, you know, it's not just about like a box checking. We do try to do a yeah. more holistic assessment. Yeah, of course. That makes sense. I think that's actually a great segue into the next section. We're going to kind of deep dive into the interventions and the specific areas that open philanthropy are, seem particularly interested in funding um, and corporate relations being one of them. Um, do you still plan to continuing to continue funding this particular area um, in the future? Obviously, quite a large amount of um, movement funding for corporate relations work has come from open philanthropy. Um, is that the, the plan to continue? Yes, I think it's quite likely that we continue to fund corporate work up until we hit diminishing returns. Um, so would we continue to do that 20 years from now? I don't know. Um, but would we continue to do that next year? Yes, almost certainly in at least some contexts. And what's like your steel man for like why corporate relations is like such an important area or like what's the pitch you'd give to convince other advocates like we really should do more of this or focus on this for the time being? It's a good question. I think there are a few. One is that corporate campaigns are an area where we've already seen progress, um, and progress that's like actually tangible and enacted. There's a lot of advocacy that goes on that I think could be transformative and exciting, but is very far in the future. And you just have to, to move on faith that it's going to work out. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with corporate campaigns, you can say, like, we know like this country used to have this amount of, its of the eggs sold come from caged hens. And now it's a smaller amount. It used to have, you know, Y number of cage-free eggs, and now it's a much larger extent. So it's, that's that's exciting. That kind of tangible progress, um, especially when it affects so many animals. Um, the mm. other thing that I quite like about corporate work is that it has this symbiotic relationship with policy work. Yes. So you see, for example, in Europe, um, where there's this real possibility that EU-wide legislation will be enacted to improve the lives of farmed animals. Part of the, I, I personally think part of the reason we have that possibility is because there was such a successful 
group of corporate campaigning organizations in Europe um, to kind of weaken industry resistance um, and weaken the resistance of some individual countries where, you know, already a, a large number of the products sold in that country were cage-free or, or other less poor welfare products. Mm. Yeah, I always find that really interesting when it comes to things like imports as well. Like sometimes there's angles where the corporates actually want this as much as we do because they don't want them to push, um, you know, low welfare imports coming in when they're having to lift their standards. So I definitely agree. I feel like this angle of taking the businesses out of that resistance and actually, you know, sometimes having them on side, um, especially when it gets to, you know, more serious, sometimes um, wider policy work seems like a really good tool. Yeah, I feel excited about it. And what do you think are some challenges that the movement's currently facing with regards to corporate campaigns? So many. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, like, like anything, I think context is so important. So when you were doing cage-free campaigns in Europe, amazing you know just success after success it felt like the sky was the limit um but when you're doing broiler chicken campaigns in the united states suddenly that's a much different environment or even if you're doing cage free campaigns in india there's been like much much more difficulty getting those going um i think one challenge is the pivot from cage free to broiler chicken campaigns um cage free feels so tangible and understandable and no one would want to live in a cage you could imagine yourself like living in a small cage and of course you don't want that can kind of um, get public attention in a really meaningful way whereas the broiler chicken ask you have to explain it and it takes you know like five minutes ten minutes to explain Mm. um you have to go through like genetics and space Mm -hmm. and yeah all sorts of things that are more complicated um and so i think that's been challenging I think another challenge is more meta level, which is that um, I've heard from several advocates and seen anecdotally, there seems to be quite a large amount of turnover among staff working on corporate work. Um, My sense is it just is hard, Um, especially the corporate pressure work, just yelling at people all the time doesn't always feel good. And so there's some degree of burnout. and so quite a lot of talented staff have either left the movement or transitioned into other roles. And that is a pity. Um, and then I guess the last thing I worry about um, is that the movement is losing focus a little bit. Um, people like new things. New things are fun <laughs> and interesting and exciting. Yeah. Um, and so you, saw, you see some organizations moving to like a food systems approach to their work overall and downplaying their corporate advocacy. Um, and I, I think that's a shame. So that's, yeah, those are some of the big challenges I see. Yeah. When you say like a food systems focus, what does that tangibly look like? And how, how is that different to the corporate campaigns? I think that's a very good question. I think that is a question that I would ask um, of those organizations. <laughs> um, I guess like the less cheeky answer is that the food systems approach tends to want to take a more holistic view of animal welfare. And so it's like, let's work on antibiotic resistance and let's work on um, climate change and let's work on, you know, all of these important issues, but try to like reform the entire industry across the board rather than working on one targeted problem. Um, Mm. 
And, you know, I think reasonable people can disagree about what the right strategy is. There are plenty of very smart, thoughtful people I know who share that perspective. My fear is that when you try to change an entire system, it could very easily never work. Um, And so I would hate for all of our energy to go into this thing that, you know, if it works, amazing. But if it doesn't, we're going to be 100 years from now and things are going to look the same or worse. Um, So in the meantime, I'd also like to see people focusing on this, again, like really tangible change that we we know can happen if we focus on it. I think it makes a lot of sense. I feel like, um, particularly within the corporate work, I, I empathize with what you're saying in terms of the momentum as well. I think sometimes it's, it feels really empowering and, um, great to get those wins and and get those dates, you know, cage free by X, um, and to really have a lot of momentum around those commitments, but then actually just maintaining it and make sure the companies actually follow through and doing the check-ins, all that's just so much less sexy, right? So it's like, how do we keep the momentum for the next 10 years to check in and make sure actually they follow through with the commitments and we've held them accountable? Because actually I think it could all go wrong very quickly if there isn't that accountability because then one company sees oh yeah you just have to put the commitment on but then like you don't totally need to follow through with it um so yeah keeping on their tails making sure they're actually following through seems um yeah something that we really need to to push for and i'm glad organizations are are pushing for that there seems to be getting some good traction there Yeah, I completely agree. I think there are many examples of times in the animal movement where we thought we had won on an issue. And so we just shifted our focus completely. I think, you know, fur is a good example. Gestation creates is another example. Um, And then it's very easy to backslide if you don't have that sustained attention. But but like you said, I see why it feels like a slog to be going into your like (laughs) 15th year of working on, you know, cage-free advocacy and whatever. Um, So yeah, completely agree with you. Do you think the tactic could also have run the risk of becoming a bit stagnant with the companies? Sometimes I think this sense of um, going back to the same companies just with a different ask, so you've like put pressure on them before and then it's like, hey, me again. Um, yeah. Is there like a sense that actually they just get a bit tired of the same tactics? I worry about that a lot. Um, and I do think one of the dangers with corporate advocacy is that because you saw so much early success, now people want to use it for everything. Um, you know, Aaron Ross is like one of the smartest people I know when it comes to this kind of thing. Actually, Amy, you as well. Um, and and when, um, when people are like, let's use corporate campaigns to do X, I always just see Aaron go like, uh, oh no, (laughs) not this. Um, because I do, I do think that you need to be like very, very thoughtful about not overusing the tactic. Um, and not having, you know, 10 different groups come to the same company with 10 different asks, I think that's quite damaging. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. We hope to have Aaron on the podcast, actually. Very interested to get all of his insight on that. Yeah, he'd be excellent. <laughs> and then moving past corporate campaigns, what are some other interventions or high-level approaches that you or the team at Open Philanthropy are particularly excited about? I think I can speak for the team when I say that I'm at this moment in time particularly excited about European policy work. It feels like such a rare moment to have lasting change that will last, you know, will last a generation. Yeah. Um, so quite, quite excited about that kind of advocacy at the moment. Um, and then speaking for myself personally, 
Um, I'm also excited about the work being done to help groups um, around the globe um, and to develop the animal welfare movement around the globe. So, for example, we've recently funded a group, EA Singapore, um, to run a fellowship and regranting project in Southeast Asia. Um, I'm quite excited about that. I think that the Open Wing Alliance was really successful at helping to elevate the profile um, and expand the size of groups around the globe. Um, and I'm hopeful that others can do that in, in, in the areas where the Open Wing Alliance hasn't had as much influence or impact. And in terms of that broad move and building approach, how do you guys think about actually, you know, increasing the effectiveness or size of a given move in a country? Yeah. What, what, do, you, what do you think is like the best approaches to actually do that? Well, it's interesting that you asked that. Um, we actually have two of our team members, um, Emma Buckland and Martin Gould, are right now doing a deep dive into movement building because oh, that's great. a very big question. Yeah, I expect they'll She spoke with probably. Emma re- recently, so I, I do oh, have some wonderful. context. <laughs> oh, yeah. wonderful. Sorry, yeah, keep yeah. Going. <laughs> um, I, I expect they'll spend the next you know, six months to a year looking into wow. all of these things we funded, what worked, what didn't work, what has worked in other contexts. Um, so they will be able to give you a much better answer than I can give you. Um, <laughs> my initial take is just based on some of the successes and failures that I've seen. Um, so things that I've seen work particularly well are funding passionate advocates um, in a country, especially ones who have connections to other parts of the globe. So. I'm going to give a hypothetical, but you find someone in Indonesia who has a really strong relationship with groups in Thailand and uh, Malaysia, um, and so who can start their own thing, but do it as part of like a broader connection. Um, mm. That kind of thing I've seen work quite well. Mm. Do you mean as a regrantor or just like they set up kind of like spin-off organizations doing campaigning in different groups in the countries? Either, either. So either as a regranter, um, a spinoff, or just starting, helping someone start their own thing from, from mm. scratch. But there's that network there, right? So then yes. just, I'm on my own in a country that's never had this type of advocacy brought here. There's a support network there. Yeah, precisely. Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of the groups like in the Philippines or in Thailand, like have all these really strong relationships. So when they start a new thing, it isn't just to like, ah, uh, I want to help animals. How does one do that? Um, But they'll share ideas about like, this is what's worked um, in targeting legislators in my country, or this is what's worked targeting corporates or whatever it is. There's like a little bit of a shared context that they can share with each other. Mm. And can you speak to the failures as well? Yeah, I I don't want to name anyone specifically, um, (laughs) in part because I think most of the failures have not come because people did a bad job, um, but just because things didn't hit right for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, Starting new groups is really, really hard. (laughs) And so when we funded new groups to start, I don't know the exact percentages, but I think it's plausible as many as 50% of those have not really... Um, done what they set out to do. Yeah, it's just, it's really hard. You know, you end up spending your first year or two just with the logistics of starting an organization before you can even begin to work on advocacy. And that's, that's difficult. Um, The other thing that I've seen not succeed as frequently as I would have guessed is um, international organizations moving into a country, Um, especially, you know, if they're trying to 
bring a completely different context to that country, or they are trying to run the country's operations. You know, if you, this is again a hypothetical, but if you're like in the Philippines, trying to do advocacy work in the Philippines, but you're based in London, um, yeah. that's just hard. You know, I think you're yeah. less likely to succeed. And so those are, that kind of thing is some of the failures we've seen. We actually spoke to Nikunj from MFA, Mercy for Animals India about this. And and would you say that you think, based on your broad view is that you'd rather support kind of up and coming local organizations rather than supporting the expansion of international NGOs to new countries and regions? Speaking for myself, yes. Um, especially mm. at this moment in time. If you had asked me this question seven years ago, I think I might have had a different answer. Um, but just seeing what has more frequently worked, yes. Mm. And maybe another question on the movement building side of things is, I guess I can imagine in a country that has very little animal advocacy, if your priorities kind of mostly corporate campaigns and there just isn't that much of that happening in that country, to what degree are you flexible with funding kind of different approaches you wouldn't otherwise fund in the US or Western Europe, but just because to kind of ignite the movement and get things going more broadly? Historically quite flexible. Um, I don't know if we would always continue to be that flexible. I think this is a question for Emma and Martin. I think the big question is, you know, you fund something in a country like China um, that you wouldn't necessarily fund elsewhere. Does it have impact in China? Does it lead, even if it doesn't initially have impact, does it lead to something that does have impact? I think these are kinds of open questions. Mm. Um, but yes, we've all, we've often funded tactics specifically in like in Southeast Asia that we wouldn't fund in Europe just, yeah, because of the different context. I feel like it's interesting from the organization perspective as well. And I would like maybe to know from you how, um, in terms of the, the runway you give organizations for what you would classify as a success, I guess, at that point, um, or to, to classify it as a failure, especially when it's a new tactic. Do you feel like you give organizations in that position more leeway to try it out and test it? Or is it kind of like a shorter timeline because we need to know quite quickly that we're not just sinking money into something that just seems like a bit of a non-starter? We're evolving on this a little bit, and I suspect we're not at the end of our evolution. Um, when I first started working at Open Philanthropy, we had a lot of one-year grants that was like, a, let's try something new, let's do it for a year and see how it goes. Um, and then frequently at the end of that year, you just have no idea, right? Like you spend, <laughs> you give someone funding and then they have to go do something with it. You know, maybe they have to hire staff or develop reports or whatever they have to do. And um they get to the end of the year and they're still like in the thick of it. Um, so I'm now a believer in giving multi-year grants, especially for new initiatives. That said, I think there's a very good counter argument that at some point you want to be able to know that you have cut your losses. And so you don't want to continue with something that's failing forever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think probably the greater harm is to not give something enough of a chance. Um, the other variable is how much money you're talking about. So if it's an initiative that doesn't take a ton of funding, then I feel more comfortable giving that group some time to kind of figure it out and see what works. If it's a strategy that requires a huge amount of funding to succeed, then I feel much more anxious <laughs> about being like, yes, here I have a million dollars every year for five years. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. That feels a little bit um, more precarious to me. 
Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think actually Emma spoke to this um, in a previous episode about um, having received some money from Open Phil and feeling like doing corporate relations, feeling like, wow, I need like a hundred commitments immediately, like go, go, go. And this kind of pressure to, um, to have those results quite quickly. So I think it's, yeah, it's nice to hear that there's that, um, sense of understanding that progress can be slow. And actually, especially because that was in Turkey, one of the first organizations working on the issue, um, good support network supported by the OWA. It seems plausible that with time and the right setup, um, that, you know, that, that work would be, um, would be successful, you know, in, in the longer term. So, um, yeah, I, I don't envy you trying to measure, um, whether to continue funding an organization or, um, yeah, sadly move away. But I think that organizations that feel that we haven't given them enough time, I think that's like an extremely reasonable critique. Um, probably mm. in many cases they're right. Um, you know, and earlier we were speaking about some of the challenges of corporate work and I mentioned, how much burnout there is among people doing corporate advocacy. I do think it's possible that funders, including open philanthropy, are contributing to that burnout by creating this expectation of like, okay, we want to see 100 commitments in the next year or else like you're out. We're, we're going to cut all funding. Um, that's a... I don't think we actually do that. We're, we try to be more understanding sure. than that. But <laughs> yeah. I, could imagine, mm. I could imagine really reasonably why that pressure would feel there. Um, and it probably makes the job much more difficult um, and probably makes strategy like, really complicated. Mm. Is that a wider conversation at Open Philanthropy? Is there things you've put in place to try and alleviate some of that pressure without taking it off completely that perhaps organizations sit back? Is there a happy medium where you can feel fulfilled and that you're getting the successes you require to relate back to your funders, but also the organizations don't have this sense of, you know, kind of uncontrollable pressure or burnout in that sense? I think it's probably something we haven't solved yet. Um, the difficulty is that on the one hand, you don't want to create this horrible, unsustainable pressure. You also don't want people making the strategic decision to pursue something, not because they think it's the right thing to do, but because they think they have to do it in order to get more funding. Yeah. Um, yeah. On the other hand, sometimes strategies stop working and you don't want to kind of throw good money after bad because you're giving something such a long runway. Um, so I, I don't think that we've probably hit upon what the right balance is and I don't feel confident about what the right balance would be. Mm. It's a hard trade-off because while the organizations might feel kind of hard pressed by this, it's for you, it's, you know, if another group gets it, they could be doing lots of good for animals and then to be depriving them or like making that balance worse is like, that will also weigh on you guys. So it's like, it's so hard to get this right. Yeah. And that's why this, the fact that we don't have these kind of unlimited funds becomes such a problem because, you know, I don't want groups to feel competitive with each other. Um, and I hope that the movement can support a lot of different approaches and that we can fund a lot of different things. But yeah, it is, it is kind of like, I don't want to say a zero sum game, but there is a sense to which whenever you fund one thing, you're not funding another. So it's, it's challenging. Yeah. Mm. How, what is the split like currently between money put towards kind of more capacity building and the movement um, versus the interventions and really directly helping animals? Um, so we are, we just finished <laughs> categorizing um, our grants to see what percentage of our portfolio is capacity building. And depending on how you define capacity building, um, it's between seven and 20%. Um, okay. Yeah. Although, 
I think that everything everything comes to the definition because you could define everything to be capacity building. Right. Mm. How do you think about that trade-off? So I, I guess, do you think, maybe there's a broader question, but in terms of open philanthropies work for animals, are you trying to do what maximizes your impact for animals over the next few years or 50 years? I guess that can probably determine a lot how much you invest in capacity building now versus direct impact. And yeah, how does that play into your thinking? Yeah, I mean, I would, I'm would. i hopeful that what we're doing is impacting the lives of animals for the next 100 years. Um, and so we try to have some long-term bets and we try to have some short-term bets. Um, a lot of our movement building work feels like a long-term bet. Um, as I said, you know, when you start a new organization, you don't normally see payoff for several years. Um, but even the short-term bets, I feel like, are long-term bets, right? Like a, a big company makes a cage-free commitment and that helps the animals today, but that also is going to help the animals a hundred years from now, assuming the company <laughs> upholds that commitment for the next one right. years. Are there any projects or strategies that have just completely exceeded your expectations? Um, there are. I can definitely think of specific grants. Um, the one that most immediately comes to mind is we made a grant to Compassion and World Farming several years ago to lead this end the cage age initiative mm. in Europe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was looking at the write-up that Lewis Ballard had done recently, and I think he gave it something like, you know, 10% odds that this, this effort will work. <laughs> but if it does, you know, it would be so huge for animals and these people seem so smart and strategic. So let's take the bet. And boy, <laughs> did that pay <laughs> off. Um, wow. Yeah. So, so Policy work in general is one that I think we kind of underinvested in because we were skeptical about the potential that it had, um, but have been pleasantly surprised by how it's gone once we started investing in it more. Yeah, I think that's movement wide, right? We've had such a shift over the last few years of just everyone. Yeah, policy is kind of like, feels like the place to be for that long term, like you said, 100 years from now change. Right. Mm. And I, I think that picks up something interesting that I think may set open philanthropy aside from other funders, you said, even though I had a 10% chance, you're like, this is great. We should go for it. And I think that <laughs> kind of hint, hints at how you guys think maybe differently to other funders where you're not trying to maximize your chance of succeeding. You're, you're trying to maximize, you know, succeeding versus the impact if it does. And how much does that play into your decision-making? It plays into our decision-making a lot. And, and I think that in recent years, we've erred too much on the side of making sure bets. And so, we're talking a lot about how to, to get to a place where we are once again bold and feel comfortable making mm. um, really unsure bets. But, you know, if, if we had a grant that was going to, I'm not going to get the numbers right, but I'll, I'll try to do it on the fly. <laughs> if we had a grant that was like 100% chance of affecting, you know, 10 animals um, and a grant that had a 1% chance of affecting a million animals, we would... Yeah we should take that 1% chance. And yeah, we're trying to use that to guide our thinking. Nice. Are there any interventions that stand out or approaches that you just definitely aren't interested in funding? And um, if there are, why is that? Yeah, because we are so numbers-based, um, because so much of our focus is helping as many animals as possible, the interventions that help fewer animals are kind of off of the agenda for us. So, you know, I, I just mentioned a hundred percent chance of helping 10 animals, like an animal sanctuary is that, you know, you give them money, yeah. and you know, you know, they're going to help those 10 animals. Um, and I don't, don't mean to dismiss sanctuary work. Um, 
but that is something that we we don't fund because it doesn't fit within our within our mandate to kind of maximize impact as much as possible. Mm. Um, and then on a larger scale, you know, we, we probably wouldn't fund a project to help say dairy cows in the United States, just because the numbers aren't there compared to other things that we could be funding. Um, and then the last category of things we don't fund are kind of obvious. Like we won't give money to people to do like explicitly super illegal things or dangerous things or violent <laughs> things or things of that nature. Yeah. And I okay, kind of related is you kind of spoke previously about funding corporate campaigns because they have a really provable measure of success. And like we've clearly, you know, taken maybe 30% of US chickens out of cage systems. And that's an amazing win. And how do you balance that with kind of funding stuff because it's easy to measure and you know as impact even though there, there are some approaches that are hard to measure but you think have this unsure but like very exciting possibilities and yeah how often do you think about measurability bias and how that impacts your work i'm sure that we have measurability bias um it is something that we talk about a lot and try to avoid um but but measurability bias can happen in a lot of different ways right like one way it can happen is that you only fund things that you can definitely measure success. But another thing that could happen is you fund something that's a huge failure, but you don't know it's a failure because you can't measure it. And so you're like, <laughs> well, this this is probably working. It's probably fine. Um, so it is it is something we think a, lo- a lot about. Um, part of what we do is try to be a little bit gentler again for things that have enormous potential impact. But this movement building work in general, like, you know, I'm starting a new organization in Malaysia and they probably won't have meaningful change for 10 years. Um, yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that if we do think that the potential impact is high, we should probably do it. I think the other thing that we should try to do is, is try to eliminate the measurability problem by finding things that you can measure, if that makes sense. Like mm. maybe I don't know what's going to happen in China in a hundred years or in 50 years, but there are probably indicators of success that we can look at. And so we just need to figure out what those indicators of success are and be comfortable with like, we're only going to get an indicator rather than the end result for a while. Mm. And to what degree do you think alternative protein kind of investments or grants fall into that category of hard to measure? Or do you think actually you do have a good idea of how that stuff could turn out? I think, no, I think it's been quite hard to measure. Um, Not to keep saying Emma and Martin, (laughs) but Emma and Martin. um, (laughs) They have a lot on their plates. (laughs) They do. (laughs) Um, And a third colleague of ours, Abhi, um, have been looking at alternative proteins. That's another project that they've been working on to try to figure out, like, what what is the pathway to success? How do we know if we're on the pathway to success um, I think there are a lot of big open questions there. Okay. Um, we're going to move on now to a section all about the application process. I think let's maybe keep this one pretty kind of quick fire. Um, maybe many people listening have already applied or been through it, but for those that haven't, um, what does a typical application process look like? So um, you don't have um, like open applications. So how do you identify groups that could be of interest to fund? It has evolved as our program has evolved. Um, In the beginning, a lot of it was motivated by us. So we would think like, oh, you know, we should try. We should try to figure out, you know, what are things that one could do like in India? What are things that Mm. one could do in Japan, whatnot? Um, Do some brainstorming, 
do a lot of interviewing of advocates and experts, come up with our own ideas. And then once we had things that we felt excited about, then go out and see if there were things to fund in that space. That's less and less of the program as the program has matured. Um, So now new things are often recommended to us by other people. Um, One question that I like to ask of, you know, interesting advocates I meet is, what is something we're not funding that we should be funding, whether that's an Mm. organization or a strategy? Um, And people have great ideas and then we can go and pursue those ideas. We can steal those ideas. Mm. Um, We do also get cold pitched. um, And while those less often result in funding, um, they do sometimes result in funding. So that's, I guess, kind of the last way that we get introduced to new projects. And is that like at a, that's at a conference or that's someone just emailing a deck? Yeah, just emailing is a lot of it. Um, I think people, I don't even know what the email address is. It might even be like info at openphilanthropy.org or something like that. Um, And then we get passed along those emails. Or yes, I'll be having a conversation with someone at a conference and they'll say, hey, I've got this great idea. Um, (laughs) And sometimes sometimes I get those are really great ideas and those to funding. You must hear that a lot though. (laughs) (laughs) i do hear it pretty frequently (laughs) it does make um, the conferences (laughs) it is funny to have gone from being an advocate to being a funder like the number of people who want to hang (laughs) at conferences has gone way up and i don't think it's because i've gotten like more charming or interesting um yeah yeah but i i see i get it i totally get it (laughs) <laughs> uh, I feel the same way because I've recently doing a bit of grant making work with Mobius and yeah the people who want to hang out with me is like increasing dramatically uh, yeah. <laughs> week, week on week and it's like I know who my real friends were yeah, exactly <laughs> right, if you wanted to talk to me 10 years ago when I could do nothing for you like yeah then we're pals yeah, yeah. we're going to see you both just hiding in the corner somewhere <laughs> yeah. at the conferences <laughs> yeah James and I will just talk to each other that's right yeah great <laughs> And kind of on that as well, um, in terms of how long you spend researching per grant, how, how does that look based on the size of the grant in terms of how many hours would you spend per 100,000, per million? And yeah, and like how involved would you talk to other people? At what stage would you call in experts and all, all that kind of information? That's a good question. It, this varies um, a little bit by the team member. And by that, I mostly just mean that I'm a notorious over-investigator. Um, <laughs> too, too much investigations for me. Um, but a more general answer is that we do scale it to the size of the grant. So um, we do have a grant process internally for smaller grants, um, grants of $100,000, $200,000, maybe $300,000 um, are ones that we can do with relatively less internal process. Um, and so those require some investigation, um, especially if it's a tactic or an area that we're unfamiliar with. Um, Mm. but not very much investigation comparatively. Um, Grants that are larger, you know, a a million dollar grant, I would spend much more time investigating. We also, we have kind of a two-part process for the larger grants where we first write up the general idea, hey, I want to fund some undercover investigations in Latin America, for example. I'd write up this general pitch, um, then see how much interest there was internally, see like, what are the questions people have? What are the reservations? Mm. And then once we did that first step, then I would go out and say, okay, so what I mean by that is I want to fund this group all about animals in, you know, Brazil or whatever, um, and then make the more specific recommendation. So those, those investigations can take several months, um, just because of the degree of process and yeah, and also just the degree of investigation we want to do. 
Mm. And obviously that's several months kind of alongside many other projects. But if you had had to press you for like hours per that project, what do you think that would look like? Yeah, again, depending a little bit on the size, um, I could could probably pull up my time tracker (laughs) and tell you. (laughs) Um, But the the tens of hours, probably. Um, I, I don't think it's the, it's the very rare project that we're in the like hundreds of hours of investigation. Are there any plans to solicit applications in the future? Um, no active plans, although I think it's quite likely that it's something that we would do at some point. Yeah, sure. And do you have any, um, I guess, speaking of people approaching you randomly at conferences or getting emailed, do you have any pet peeves or like things that you people shouldn't kind of say or do when trying to ask for funding and this can be kind of yeah kind of anything that kind of comes to mind not a ton of pet peeves in part because i think the funder applicant relationship just is a lot more unpleasant for the applicant than for the funder you know anything that's like a little annoying to me um on the other side could be really annoying or mm. scary or stressful um that said honesty is just a big one. Um, if people overinflate their impact, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to find out. And then mm. I'm just going to feel really turned off of a project because of it. I want to be sure that people are being transparent with me. Um, my, my favorite grantees, and we have some, are the ones that will call me up and be like, something horrible has happened. You know, we've made a <laughs> terrible mistake. Um, and I can confidently say that for most of those were then like, great, I want to fund you forever. Like I'm, I feel very confident that at least then the big things that are good that you're telling me are, are true. Yeah. That's interesting. And then, uh, I guess on the opposite side, any, any quick tips for a, a really successful application, obviously, like you say, transparency, honesty is really important. What's the, the kind of key, um, are there any other key pieces of information you're looking for? Being really clear, both in your own mind and in the application about the path to impact. Um, Mm. So not just, you know, a a project that I'd be less keen to fund would be one that said like, uh, again, using pure hypotheticals, oh, we're going to help chickens in Argentina. um, And we're going to, you know, we're going to run some ads. We're going to talk to the newspapers and we think that's going to work out. Um, But the same project, if they came to me and what the proposal was, is like, we want to help chickens in Argentina. We have noticed that there's this um, regulation that if changed these three words, the impact would be big. And so what we think we need to do is we think we need to run ads in these magazines that we know that legislators read a lot of. And we think through that, the legislators are going to you know, be more likely to X, Y, and Z. Um, those like very clear paths to impact are a lot easier mm. to fund than ones that feel kind of amorphous. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think actually if people who want to see charity entrepreneurship posted on the EA forum about having a good theory of change with lots of good steps on how to have a good theory of change and what that looks like. So people maybe have some good reading there. Mm, yeah. We'll link it below as well. Absolutely. Cool. And in terms of Open Philanthropies funding going forward, obviously for those even vaguely aware of the Effective Altruist community might have seen it's been a pretty rocky uh, period with you know FTX future fund and other things kind of in turmoil and how how has this or how will this affect open philanthropies farm animal welfare funding in the next year like few years or decade or so yeah i'm happy to say that at least for the next couple of years our funding should remain relatively stable um so i don't know exactly what that 
will mean in terms of the bottom line dollar amount, but I do expect relative stability for the next couple of years. Mm. Um, Beyond the next few years, though, open philanthropy just hasn't made any budgetary decisions at all. So that's that's a little bit more of an open question. And when thinking about those slightly longer timelines then um, and the interventions that um, seemingly lasting the test of time, what are you most excited about reducing animal suffering way into the future, looking at the next 20, 30, 40 years? Um, does that, is that still the same opinion for the next sort of couple or 10 years? Yeah, I'm not really sure. My guess is that if you talk to me in 50 years, the thing that I was most excited about was some intervention I haven't even occurred to me now, or that someone suggested to me and I was like, no, never. Um, so I don't feel, I don't feel very confident specifically about like the type of tactic. Um, one thing Mm. that I do feel more confident about is that I think I will continue to be excited about broadening the realm of species that we care about and advocate for. Um, you know, like the recent expansion has been into fish welfare advocacy and I think that's great, but there's so, there's so much more to do, um, I feel like we've just like dipped our toe into fish welfare advocacy, um, especially as compared to other species. And then you can take steps back and there are species that we're doing even less for. I think crustaceans are a good example of like, there's a little bit happening, much less than fish, but a little bit happening, but I think there should be a lot more. Um, And then there are probably other species that we're doing nothing for that we'll look back someday and be like, oof, we should have started that 20 years sooner. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Is that how you feel a bit about insects? Oh, I so was trying not to say insects <laughs> because <laughs> open philanthropy does not have a stance on insects. So um, okay. Okay. I think, I think you know, I don't want to commit open philanthropy to anything. I could imagine 50 years from now, open philanthropy is not in the insect game. And I think that would be a reasonable decision. Oh, wow. um, but but that, that, that's kind of surprising. How come that feels so different to your personal decisions? Is that because, yeah, the evidence on welfare really isn't that strong in your opinion? Yeah, that's right. Just we just don't know. Um, mm. And I don't know when we're going to know that there's just huge swath of uncertainty. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to overstate the case, like I could imagine, easily imagine a world where 50 years from now, open philanthropy is in the insect game. But I think it's just like a really open question. Maybe it's a dwell a tiny, tiny bit longer. But that feels kind of at odds with like the idea of kind of expected value, right? Because even if there's like a few percent chance that they're sentient, just again, by sheer numbers, when they not kind of swamp even like the chicken cases. If you were talking to me, Amanda, like over a beer, <laughs> I think <laughs> I would probably agree with you. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I think you also want to be um, trying to think of the right word. You want to be responsible with your funding. So that comes out in a few different ways. One is that if you shift big into insects, again, there's just like money for the chickens and the fish mm. and the crustaceans or whatnot. And so you want to be careful um, when funding big new areas. Um, the other thing is that insects feel weird in a way that, you know, fish don't feel weird. Yeah, I think even Peter Singer at the last AVA conference said maybe it's too soon for insects. And if, if Peter Singer said that, I think that, well... <laughs> um, Singer said a lot of things. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. He, he has said a lot. But cool. I, I think that's, that's really interesting to hear in terms of yeah, because I think that all the whole other point you said is there isn't maybe necessarily that much to fund in the space as well. Maybe just much less tractable, just because people, like you said, have less moral concern or interest in helping insects and some of the things that maybe work in our way for other animals, like reducing carbon emissions, doesn't may not square up exactly the same way for insects. So. 
yeah, I can imagine there's a bunch of reasons to not jump into that space as well. It's really hard for me to imagine, you know, what is, even if you 100% believed that insects were moral beings, you know, that they, they, they had a high degree of suffering or capacity for welfare, you thought that you definitely needed to act on their behalf. It's kind of hard for me to think what you do then. What's like the next step? Um, I know there are some people who are starting to think about that, but it is so nascent at this point that, yeah, I don't know what you do. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Thanks, Amanda. I really appreciate your openness there. And perhaps then um, we can touch a little bit on AI, another um, buzz um, topic at the moment. Um, I'm sure it's uh, being spoken about a lot at Open Phil and the other in other cause areas um, in the long term space. Um, what's your take, or do you have a take on how AI advancements might actually um, affect animal advocacy or any kind of animal welfare measures going forward? I don't have a super hot take. Um, I have cold takes. So <laughs> um, I have heard proposals from people, even for the past, I, I want to say five to 10 years now, um, that there are some ways in which machine learning could be used to help animal welfare. Um, and the idea as it's been pitched to me and as I'm probably going to restate inelegantly is that, um, you could have, you know, cameras say in a chicken plant, um, monitoring, um, the flock and identifying when animals are injured, um, or whether there yeah. are, when there are other indicators of poor welfare and you could then take action based on that. Um, I've heard similar proposals for like fish, um, that it's, it's hard for producers to keep an eye on like the, the welfare of any individual fish and that maybe you could do some sort of like underwater camera or something like that and evaluate welfare that way. Um, so it feels like a, I don't know if that's the right thing to do, but that feels like one way in which AI could play a role in farm animal welfare. But beyond that, I just don't know. <laughs> um, I was trying to think of what the worst case scenario is, and I'm sure there's a really bad one. Um, but, you know, industrial agriculture already treats people like machines. You know, the, the, the workers are just like little machines um, to a lot of industrial animal agriculture that I actually struggle to think of how much worse it could get with the AI. It's funny you mentioned that it might improve animal welfare. I've actually always thought the opposite. <laughs> I kind of thought mm, like... Very interested um, in that. Like somehow machine learning will like not be optimized not for animal welfare or like picking up when animals injured but rather just optimizing purely for like how fast they grow and the profit margins mm, and therefore production. it even like further excludes um animal welfare concerns but i mean I, I also have no idea we actually want to speak to someone on the podcast about it so if anyone knows anyone please contact <laughs> yeah, it would us. Be fascinating. Yeah. yeah it feels like such a big black box and obviously there's been so many advancements recently and there's some more obvious ways maybe in in terms of protein development, I think there's a few companies doing machine learning to develop plant-based and cultivated meat. And besides that, it feels like a real um, black box. Yeah, absolutely. But I think you're right that if there is a way for it to be used for evil, it absolutely will be, right? Like that just seems like oh. how it goes. <laughs> Great way to end the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, everyone goes home and feel horrible, yeah. <laughs> no, we'll finish with no, something more so uplifting, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, we'll just jump to some closing questions, some optimism for the end. Um, I'd love to know one bit of news that you were really excited about recently or something you were grateful for. Um, yeah, something something recent. 
I was very excited for the recent um, United States Supreme Court decision um, allowing California's cage-free law to stand. I felt pretty pessimistic about how that was going to turn out. Um, and it would have been a, but a huge blow to farm animal welfare in the United States. So quite surprised, um, grateful and excited for that one. Yeah, I think Prop 12 was, yeah, a big relief and a big, yeah, happy moment. Although now there's other things happening like the eats. Yes. Let's put that, <laughs> let, let's just put that aside for now. Um, and in terms of any kind of recommendations you'd have for listeners to either just some things you found useful personally, or that has informed your thinking kind of as uh, the open fill farm animal welfare team. Yeah. Anything you'd like to share with people? There are a few. Um, so I would be remiss if I did not plug my colleague, Lewis Bollard's newsletter. I think it's great. <laughs> um, uh, so I definitely encourage people to subscribe to that. Um, I think rethink priorities continues to put out really interesting research and they have changed my mind on many topics over the last few mm. years. So I encourage people to um, look for that work and support that work. And then the last one is um, the Future Perfect newsletter and especially Kenny Torella's um, writing is really always very interesting and illuminating. Yeah, totally agreed on all those fronts. I think, yeah, I think Rethink's research has made me also much more concerned about invertebrates, especially insects and the whole, yeah, the moral weights project I think was fascinating and yeah, definitely recommend all the, all those resources and yeah, we'll link them below. As OpenFill more widely, are you hiring? I know you were saying that the team's expanded quite a bit over the last few months, um, but is there anything our listeners can do to help the Open Philanthropy team? Um, the farm animal welfare team at Open Philanthropy is not currently hiring, but Open Philanthropy at large is hiring and is almost always hiring. Um, <laughs> so I highly recommend people um, check out our, our jobs listing. Um, I believe we even have a general application if you're not sure if any of these roles are the right fit for you, um, or maybe you just want us to know about you in general and, and get in touch in the future if the right role arises. Um, definitely recommend people reach out about that. Um, the other thing is that I, I am always sourcing new grant ideas. And so please feel free to drop me a line, recommend something yourself, your friends, others. Um, always, always interested to hear what you think that we're not funding that we should be funding. Nice. How, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? People can email me. Um, my email is amanda at openphilanthropy.org. Great. We'll also put that in the show notes. That's really generous. Thank you. Great. Thank you. I hope you don't get delusions. I know. Uh, I know. I'm <laughs> even a good indicator for how popular this podcast is. If I get I a million, it'll be like, oh, these guys are really doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. Everyone send good stuff. Everybody email. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks so much, Amanda. I feel like often, especially with the funders, it feels kind of like a someone in the in the ether um so actually it's been just really nice to get to know you more personally and and decision making um yeah open fill i feel like yeah sometimes it's like an entity that feels um yeah not as integrated into the act as like you said so it's just been so lovely to speak with you and hopefully yeah there'll be some new relationships um created of people reaching out and suggesting new ideas and i've just really appreciated your openness i think again like as a Funder, sometimes it's really hard to ask the, you know, those questions um, or organizations feel like they can't. So, um, yeah, I've just really appreciated your openness to the podcast in general, but also some, some of those more challenging questions. Yeah, it's been a, a huge pleasure to speak with both of you. Really thought provoking and insightful questions. So thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you, Amanda.